The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind Body Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable and let's dig in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the very first episode of It's Relatable, where we're going to explore all things relationship. I'm going to start off in this episode by introducing myself so you have a little idea of who I am and why I want to do this. And I hope that once you listen, you'll decide to come on this journey with me. At my core, I am a person who writes her way through life more than anything. I love words, and they're how I make sense of the world. I'm the author of three books, and my work has appeared in several anthologies and online outlets as well. While I write about many different kinds of things, parenting, grief, caregiving, mindfulness, social justice, the common thread among all of those things lies in relationship. My very first book, One Teenager at a Time, is a social-emotional learning curriculum for teens and tweens filled with exercises and ideas for teachers to use as they help adolescents build healthy relationships and develop their own identities. My memoir, Truth Has a Different Shape, came out in 2020, and it explores ideas of caregiving and what happened when, as a child, I was taught not to trust my own experiences and ideas by the adults around me. My most recent book is a parenting book for parents of teens called Happy Healthy Teens, Why Focusing on Relationship Works, and it uses principles of mindfulness and an exploration of what really builds strong, healthy connections within families and what doesn't. The coaching I do with educators and parents of teenagers is about building relationship. The work I do with writers who are developing their own memoirs revolves around excavating memory and understanding it in the context of how it connects us to or disconnects us from ourselves, each other, and the world around us. I also teach workshops on grief and rage, working with people to understand where these big emotions live inside of us and how to safely metabolize them in order to create more space for joy and peace. As a child, I was fascinated with the why and how of things, just like many kids are. And I went on to college in a pre-med track. Fortunately, I went to a liberal arts school and was forced to take classes other than math and science. And it was in my philosophy classes that I began to understand how big and how small our world can be, depending on where we focus our attention. Taking biology and chemistry classes at the same time that I was sitting in classrooms asking questions about context and meaning was a way for me to begin to explore all the different kinds of relationships we find ourselves in at any given moment. In the years since those college days, I have worked in spaces where I was able to think about those connections deeply. I have treated patients who were suffering greatly, and I saw how simply listening to them and acknowledging their pain created a kind of space where they could relax a little bit. 
My work with children who needed psychiatric inpatient care and their families taught me how important it is to create a network of supportive relationships that will change and grow with the needs of every family member. Raising my own children gave me insight into the ways adult relationships change as we go through different life stages and how vital it is to be intentional about how we show up in our interactions with our kids and their friends. As I became an empty nester, I spent a lot of time thinking about who I am and how I care for myself and what it even means to be me now that I'm not raising children. Taking care of elderly parents as they died created a new dimension of relationship I definitely wasn't prepared for. I was raised by baby boomer parents who wholeheartedly believed in the independent spirit, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. And I bought into the idea that the best thing I could be was independent, relying on nobody else for anything. In the years since then, I've begun to realize how harmful that idea is and how much harder it made my life. So all of my work these days is around relationship. How do we interact with each other and ourselves? How do we let ourselves be affected by music and art and words? How do we view things like food and community? I know without a shadow of a doubt that we are all better when we recognize our interrelatedness. And from that, I believe it is important for us to lead with intention, to be deliberate and clear in how we choose to interact with and honor those things. I'm always thinking about the things that build healthy connections and the things that destroy them. Power, competition, shame, fear. Those are things that destroy relationship. Trust, compassion, curiosity. Those are fuel for strong relationships. I'm hopeful that we can talk about this as it pertains to education. Human beings learn best within the context of relationship, but the way our educational system is set up, it can be challenging for teachers to develop strong, healthy relationships with their students. When students feel safe and emotionally calm, even as they are facing challenges, their brains are more available to absorb the information we share with them in the classroom. When they feel connected to educators, and truly believe that those teachers are invested in their well-being and their education, students are more likely to persevere through difficult tasks and ask questions that will help them understand and become strong advocates for themselves when they're struggling. I also think about this in the context of workplaces. Often at work, there's a tension between building strong relationships and maintaining a sense of order and hierarchy. As a manager, it can be difficult to know how to be in a position of power over others and simultaneously create a culture that is trusting and cooperative and open. By exploring the qualities of healthy relationships and the barriers to true connection, we can begin to formulate a plan that will shift the way we work together and accomplish the things that are important to all of us. Workplace culture is tremendously important because it often determines whether employees feel valued at work and how they view the work they're asked to do. While it is possible to lead teams of people who are productive without establishing relationships among them and between them and their leaders, when employees feel connected to each other in ways that meet their basic psychological needs, they are more creative and collaborative and committed to meeting challenges. Leaders who cultivate relationship are happier and more able to rely on employees to make choices that result in positive outcomes for everyone. 
As parents, our relationship with our children is one of the most important and enduring relationships we will have in our lives. And because of the nature of it, we will see it go through many changes throughout the decades. But unfortunately, we can often create patterns of communication and behavior with our kids when they're young that don't serve any of us as they get older. So many of the choices we make as parents reflect the way we were parented, and often unpacking the reasons why we say and do the things we do can help us determine whether or not we want to continue to act that way. Creating relationship with our kids is ongoing, challenging work, and it's never too late to start. Doing this work can also shift the nature of our connection to our parents and siblings because it sheds light on the patterns and relationship dynamics we have with them as well. And also, looking at our relationship to ourselves can reveal a lot about the way we make our way through the world, at home, at work, and in community. It can help us build more awareness of where we want to put our energy by working through ideas we've absorbed about success and failure, what it means to thrive, and how we balance individualism against belonging. Learning how to fully embrace who we are without judgment can strengthen our connection to others foundationally. The fact is, the more I talk to people about relationship, the more I learn, and the more my thoughts evolve. I spent most of the first half of my life without any discernible personal boundaries. Just being honest here. I spent about 20 years of my adult life believing that boundaries were the holy grail of healthy relationships. And just in the last year or so, I'm really beginning to question whether or not even that is actually true. Before you finish formulating comeback comments in your head, hear me out. Because I'm not saying we shouldn't have boundaries in relationship. I'm saying, what if we saw boundaries as a tool instead of a permanent fixture? What if we could use boundaries as a way to press pause on harmful relationship dynamics while we go do some of our own work in a protected way with the hope that those barriers can be removed at some point to allow us to re-engage in that relationship with an eye toward deepening it and enriching it for the future? To be certain, boundaries are often necessary to keep us safe, and continuing to be in relationship with someone who harms you physically or abuses you emotionally, someone who's trying to control you or is a source of active pain, that's unhealthy. But there are a myriad of ways in which we can use boundaries to keep relationships stagnant, to effectively block people who challenge us and spur us to growth that could lead to more awareness. All of this started with a disagreement I had in 2020 with a close friend that I had known for a little more than 10 years. We have a lot in common, and we've had some really engaging conversations over the years, as well as lighthearted, enjoyable times. This particular disagreement came about during the volatile time of COVID sequestering and the burgeoning protests in mid-May after George Floyd was murdered. And I think, frankly, the disagreement took both of us by surprise. But it really shook me and made me question what our friendship could possibly look like going forward. Shortly after that, I had another significant, painful exchange with a family member I've tr- struggled to create and maintain healthy boundaries with for decades. Neither of these people are folks I want to cut out of my life entirely. But if I didn't find a way to respond, I anticipated getting triggered over and over again in ways that felt painful and not productive or at the very least, holding on to some resentment. Because 
it wasn't possible to dive in and resolve the issue in a timely way. In both cases, I pulled back and stopped engaging immediately and began to think about how to create new boundaries in response. It occurred to me at some point that often we create boundaries as a punishment. You hurt me, and as a result, I'm going to stop sharing certain things with you. And we generally think about those new boundaries as permanent. I've heard from lots of people who say they've decided certain topics are off limits with individual family members, or they'll continue to be friends with someone on social media, but they will no longer follow them, meaning that their posts won't show up in their regular feed. This is self-protective, but it also means that the relationship is stuck in a place where it won't be able to grow. It occurred to me that relationships aren't healthy unless they're dynamic, if both people aren't allowed to grow together. And so I began to think about the possibility of using the new boundaries I was creating as temporary. What if, during this time, I worked to become more mindful of my own triggers, process where they came from, how I reacted to them, and what it would look like to move forward with this person in my life? In the past, I've created new walls, distanced myself from people, and been content to interact with them from that place, rather than seeking opportunities for each of us to work on our own stuff and then find a way to come back together and have a deeper, more accountable, more enlightened relationship. What if doing the work on my own stuff while I'm safe within my temporary boundaries enabled me to have a greater sense of compassion for the other person? and enlarge my own container so that I could hold that compassion and the opposing ideas with more grace? What if I was able to strengthen my own sense of self, my ideas around what I value and how I move through the world, and then come back to the relationship clearer and more ready to engage on a different level? How could that create growth in myself and the relationship? This is all, of course, predicated on the hope that the other person is doing work as well, that they are contemplating the nature of the disagreement and their own role in it. It is my hope that if we are each doing this on our own rather than continuing to trigger each other by trying to work through it together, we can eventually come to a place where we want to reconnect and deepen the relationship. All too often in my own life, I've used boundaries as a protective mechanism, a way to wall myself off from people who triggered me in one way or another. And then I rest in my safe space and I don't do the work to understand how to learn and grow from that painful interaction. Sometimes boundaries become my own personal cancel culture and I write people off entirely. Sometimes boundaries are a way to convince myself that I am right and the other person is at fault and I don't need them in my life at all or that I get to define exactly how they exist in my life. But if I am a person who believes in community and self-awareness and understands the importance of relationship for all human beings, and if I believe in the ability of each one of us to grow and evolve and in the power of relationship to help us all grow and evolve, then permanent boundaries really have no place in my relationships. I fully expect and understand the immediate gut-level reactions of folks who will call to mind people who are abusive, who refuse to do the work, who don't want the relationship to evolve because it serves them that it stays the same. I'm absolutely not advocating for anyone to toss all their rules about how they demand to be treated out the window. 
I'm not saying that it will be possible for every relationship to evolve in this way. I am saying that I hope every person in my life knows that I'm working to deepen my capacity for compassion, for building accountability in relationship, and that I will attempt to keep myself available as I can. That doesn't mean you're free to treat me poorly without consequence. It means that I won't use boundaries as a crutch to avoid doing my own work and keep myself small and safe and stagnant. It means that in order for me to be a vital, functioning part of a healthy community, I know that I cannot only surround myself with people who will always agree with me and make me feel good about myself. I want to begin to see all of my relationships as spaces where I can continue to learn and grow. The process of relating means that we are paying attention, that we are continually taking in information that enables us to shift and change our ideas of what is real and true and right for us in any given moment. Ultimately, I'm also fascinated by all of the ways we exist in relationship with things other than people. The fact is, none of us is entirely independent. And even if we thought we were, like little monks sitting in a cave in silent meditation for years, our bodies are filled with bacteria that help us digest food and optimize our immune systems. We rely on plants to metabolize carbon dioxide and produce oxygen for us to breathe, as well as providing food. We interact with the rhythms of the day and night and the seasons. And our brains process external information all day long, whether we're consciously paying attention to it or not. When we begin to feel too warm, we take off a layer of clothing. When there's smoke in the air, we close our eyes against it and begin to breathe a little differently. We are in a constant state of relationship with things both inside us and outside of us. And I am fascinated by the ones we choose to pay attention to and those we react to instantly without thinking. A year ago, I read something that really struck me, and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. It was this explanation that spiders don't only build webs in order to trap food. A spider's web actually functions as a massive extension of their nervous system. As they lay resting in one portion of the web, any slight movement or pressure on another part of the web instantly is translated to them giving them information about what is happening around them. Now, as much as spiders freak me out, I'm absolutely fascinated by them. And this gave me a lot to think about. It made me wonder about the ways in which we relate to the world around us without really knowing we're doing it. Not only things like the hair on our arms standing up when there's electricity in the air before a storm, but also the way we can be talking to someone and sense their mood by the energy they're giving off or their body language. Something else I heard recently that added to this train of thought was that of all the information we process in any given day, only 20% of it flows in the direction from our minds to our bodies. Things like, that's hot, take your hand away from it, or there's a car coming, stop and wait, or even something super mundane like, pick that pen up. The other 80% of the information we take in flows from our bodies to our minds. But we have become so conditioned to ignore most of it that we don't often pay attention. What does that say about our relationship to our bodies? I mean, obviously, if we paid attention to all of it, it would be incredibly overwhelming and we might never get anything done. But how have we tuned out in ways that might actually be harming us? 
I know people with eating disorders who literally have no way of knowing whether or not they're actually hungry because they've spent so much time tamping down that message in their bodies. There are athletes who routinely push themselves past certain limits of pain and fatigue, and then later, after years of teaching their brains to ignore those cues, they're unable to discern whether or not they should be worried about a physical symptom they're experiencing. But even smaller things, like how have we learned to treat our bodies as unreliable, ignoring cues about temperature or dismissing that spine tingle that tells us something isn't quite right? And how have we neglected to pay attention to things that might give us joy? How many of us have our bodies tell us, I'm really tired, and we go, nope, not listening to that, right? Think about all the ways in any given day where we get a message from our bodies and we decide just in a split second whether or not to ignore it without even really investigating it. I started this podcast because I want to explore all of these things and more with you. The very next episode is concerning our relationship to our bodies. My friend Jennifer Pasteloff, a New York Times bestselling author and amazing teacher, will talk to me about her eating disorder. We'll talk about shame. And we'll talk about how we have shifted the way we think about our bodies over time as we age. I will also be interviewing my friend Hope Edelman to talk about our relationship to our younger selves. Hope is a writer and educator who works with women who've lost their mothers, and she explores the impact of that not on only on ourselves, but the, by the way we mother and how we are in relationship with others. I'm going to talk to folks about our relationship to food, our relationship to music, our relationship to the natural world. I want to think about how we think about death our own and the deaths of those we love. I'm going to talk to my friend Deborah Bida about our relationship to our stuff and how that impacts our other relationships. I know when I went to clean out my mom's house after we moved her into assisted living, it was fascinating to see what she had tucked away in different places. And now that I'm older, I wrestle with which things my kids might find important for me to keep and which ones they'll see and shake their heads about once I'm gone. I want to think about our relationship to place. Are there places that automatically make you shudder because you had one bad experience there? Or places where you instantly feel your nervous system relax and your stress ratchet down a few notches? How did we form those ideas? And how are they informed by our memories? And is it possible to shift our relationship with a specific memory to give ourselves more peace or insight? What are the stories we tell ourselves and how do they impact the way we move through the world? The possibilities are endless, and I want to explore them all. I can't wait to go on this journey with you, and I want to hear from you too. I know that by its very nature, a podcast is a transactional thing. I put it out there, you listen to it. But I want to find a way to make it relational. So please interact with me. Send me your thoughts about the show. Ask questions. Let me know if there's someone you really want me to talk to or a topic you'd like me to dig into. I know your time is valuable and I want to make this worth your time. You can find my contact information in the show notes on mindbodyspirit.fm and you can also purchase books from there if you want to. After every episode, there will be show notes with links to all of the information about the people that I've spoken with so you can find them too. Please stay in touch. 
And thanks so much for listening. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, you'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical themes seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.